0: Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. In my current role as NACU president, I have the honor of working with an amazing group of independent colleges and universities. I'm a huge admirer of their approach to teaching and learning. They provide an integrated liberal, professional, and civic education. As a result, The NACU campuses graduate extraordinary professionals for a global workforce and society. Also, their campuses are beautiful. About our podcast, we will focus on topics related to higher education. We will bring in guests that wrestle with current and future challenges. They'll include college presidents, provosts, professors, researchers, authors, disruptors, reporters, strategists, and maybe even a futurist or two. They'll help us expand our window into the world of higher ed. Thank you for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. This is part one of my two-part conversation with Brian Alexander. Brian is an internationally known futurist, researcher, writer, speaker, consultant, and teacher working in the field of higher education's future. Brian speaks widely and publishes frequently with articles and appearances in the Atlantic Monthly, Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Ed, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, U.S. News and World Report, MSNBC, and NPR, to name a few. Brian is currently a senior scholar at Georgetown University and teaches graduate seminars in their Learning Design and Technology program. In this episode, We'll be focusing on Dr. Alexander's background and pathway to becoming a higher ed futurist, and also we'll talk to him about his book, "Academia Next: The Futures of Higher Education." Brian Alexander, welcome to the NACU podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for uh, inviting.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to uh, to speak with you today. Uh, I'm a big fan of your of your writing and your thinking, and also uh, I have to admit your uh, your beard—it's very impressive. <laughs> Uh, I I know our listeners can't see you, but how long has that beard been in the making?
1: It really took just a couple of years to make. Um, It just can't be controlled. It's uh, too huge. Um, So, I mean, when when I started growing it, it was, um, you know, people have 5 o'clock shadow. I I really have like 11 a.m. shadow. Um, So I, I just let it go and it just took off, and now it's just in maintenance mode. I have to cut it back every week just to, you know, make sure it doesn't take over the planet.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, I... I feel like it's a distinguishing hallmark of a futurist. Somehow, like, when I picture futurists, I picture them having long beards. So I-, I think this is a great segue into my-, my first question, which seems very basic. But, you know, what is a futurist, for, you know, for our listeners' sake? And-, and what does a futurist do on the daily? Well, futurist right now
1: really helps clients think more effectively, more strategically, and a bit more creatively about the future. So, we try to help clients see more possibilities about where things could go. We do a lot of research to make sure that they are aware of the full range of possibilities. and we do that in a way that we hope is communicated effectively. we don't We don't do predictions as much. We're very clear on showing people possibilities, you know a plural futures, a, a set of possibilities that they can think through. The futurists do this for everything, from publishing research in scholarly journals to doing mass media to consulting. Uh, to social media I'm one of the social media style futurists so I, mm-hmm. I I believe passionately in having as much interaction with as many people as possible not just to spread the word of whatever I'm finding but to improve what I'm thinking about to mm-hmm. get as much feedback and to try to spur conversations about the future
0: you know when I think about my own role like when I talk with my family members trying to explain what I do and I say you know I say oh I'm a col- focus on collaboration you know among Universities and I'm a collaborator, and they kind of turn their head sideways, and they never fully understand until you know I really get into some very specific things that we worked on, and they're like, "Oh, oh, I get it. What do you do, though?" And uh, I mean, do you get that with uh, with people when you talk about you know your role and what you do?
1: Oh, all kinds of things. I think only psychologists get more flack about this. You know, people ask me if I have a crystal ball, and then if I'm at home, I actually whip one out and show it to them, and they get freaked out, which is <laughs> nice. Um, you know they, they ask me to predict something for them, and i, do I don 't I don't quite do that mm-hmm. um, and then, and sometimes you know uh, every so often you get static um, either from people who are um, thinking about futurists that they just don 't like personally, um, mm-hmm. or uh, sometimes from people who are anti either Technology or science, and associate that associate those with uh, future's work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But otherwise, mostly a curiosity and uh, general interest, which is great.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, how did you come to this role?
1: There's a short-term answer and a long-term answer. The, the short-term answer is that from about 2002 to 2014, I was working for a nonprofit, and that nonprofit worked with up to about 200 small colleges across the U.S., helping them think about emerging technologies and I was their emerging technology person. So I was helping explain to them what were then exciting and emerging technologies like uh, social media, mobile devices, gaming, AI, uh, wikis, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was great. I mean, it was really exciting stuff, good work. But I found that when I went to a campus, if I said, all right, I'm going to talk to you about emerging technologies, I would lose half the audience right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, There'd be people who either just didn't like technology, and they would say that, or they would say, I don't think about technology. I, I don't have time to. That's why we hire people like chief information officers to do all that thinking for me. You know, they say, I, I want technology to be like my car. Right? I, mm-hmm. I don't think about it. I just turn it on and go. Right? Oh, I, I understand that, fair enough. But I was, it was bothering me. I didn't want to lose all these people. I wanted them to participate and think about this stuff. And then as I was doing this, I realized that I kept bringing in forces beyond education and technology. I was talking about demographic shifts. I was talking about economics. I realized I, I was doing straight-up futures work. Mm-hmm. I was just bringing in multiple disciplines, multiple domains, and helping them think about where their college or university could be headed. And so I just dove into the futures discipline head headfirst, uh, found I was doing some of the stuff already, mm-hmm. expanded my repertoire, and then suddenly started rebranding what I was doing as the future of education when I walked to a campus and said that, everybody would be excited. Mm. Everyone would be interested. Because even the people who call themselves Luddites, which they should never do, mm. all, those people would be fascinated. They want to know the future of education. And when it comes to technology, under that header, they are much more open and, and much more thoughtful. The long-term answer is that ever since I was a kid, I was a fan of the idea of the future. And I was also a fan of science fiction. So mm. I read... Alvin Toffler's Future Shock when I was way too young. I read a lot of science fiction in elementary school, and I was just always thinking about where things could be headed 10, 20, 30, 100 years from now. Mm. And So that was just always kind of part of my, my operating system and how I approached things. So it was, a, it was a natural slide for me personally from education technology to talking about the future of education.
0: Yeah, and, and when I look at your background, too, and, and I see uh, you have a Ph.D. in English Language and Literature from the University of Michigan. And, uh, you know, for me, some, it seems like a natural fit to have, a, to have studied literature and now be a futurist. But, you know, for our listeners, maybe you could expand a little bit on, like, how did a scholar of language and literature transition to, you know, learning design and technology and, and really focusing on the future of higher ed?
1: Well, one way is that... Literature and literary criticism now is uh, pretty multidisciplinary in its ambition. That it, it borrows from history, it borrows from sociology, from anthropology, from psychology, pretty much anything that doesn't involve math, if they can help it. Nowadays, there's uh, a great deal of interest in the digital humanities, where people mm-hmm. uh, use digital technology to learn more about all kinds of humanities issues, from history to literature. Um, and so you know, that kind of makes sense uh, in an in interdisciplinary stance. Uh, but the other thing is, early 1990s, when I first started teaching, I was discovering ways that I could use technology to help my students learn better. Uh, my first published article was about uh, using email to help students write better. You know, basically just a way, this was really 1993, uh, having students email each other drafts of their papers. And I found that when they responded by email, they actually looked at a student's paper very, very differently hmm. than when they were looking at it in print, in person, in the physical classroom. And that difference was really productive. Um, so I just kept digging on that path. It just sounded fascinating to me. I kept you know, doing more of technology. And that, you know, we have the great discipline of computer science, but also technology crosses all kinds of boundaries, you know, into psychology, mm-hmm. into sociology, new media studies, and so on. So it really made sense. There's also... English is at times, uh, or literature in general, a uh, study of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And not always. I mean, there's a, there's a long-standing kind of fuddy-duddy dislike of, uh, of fantasy that you get, especially in British and American uh, academia. But there's also that, that appreciation for writers who create elaborate new worlds. And I think that, that appreciation causes someone who thinks that way to really be open to futures practice.
0: And many of the presidents that we work with uh, come out of a background in the humanities, and actually particularly in the area of English and American Lit. You know, I often wonder, and I know this, this is not only the focus of our discussion today, but how the humanities prepare effective leaders, you know, in their, their ability to interpret narratives, under, you know, see both the details and the big picture, and then, as you mentioned, sort of that interdisciplinary ability to interpret text in an environment.
1: Quite. I mean, it's one of the reasons why uh, literature is a very common major for pre-law, for example. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of being able to analyze uh, text, but also to produce text, uh, to write effectively, uh, English should be a great place for that.
0: And yet the humanities are slowly
1: going away, right? I mean... Yeah, well, humanities enrollment is dropping all over the place in the stone, and for a lot of reasons... Uh, One is that uh, the humanities has not made a good case for itself uh, in terms of employment. Uh, We just have not made that case. In fact, there are quite a few people in the humanities who think it shouldn't make that case. Um, Mm -hmm. And then another problem is that the I think the humanities were, uh, of all the great branches of knowledge and learning, were the last to really get involved with the digital world, generally speaking. Mm. Uh, The hard sciences were there first, the quantitatively intensive social sciences second. And uh, since you know, we, we live in such a world saturated by the digital, it, it took a while uh, for the yeah, humanities to do this. There's another interesting reason, too, that I, I don't know if it's still operating, but I know it was operating in the 90s, was that oftentimes uh, English was a very, very popular major for uh, female students. And for women, that was one avenue they were allowed when so many other majors uh, actively discouraged them. And so, you know, if you look back in the 70s and 80s and the big opening of the entire curriculum towards women, and then, you know, the argument goes that a lot of women just, you know, slid out from English and went over to biology or to economics or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an interesting argument. But I, I, I hope that humanists can do a better job of trying to make the case for themselves. Obviously, I think they're crucial for society.
0: Well, let's turn to your book, Academia Next, The Futures of Higher Education. And you acknowledged early on in the book that we are, in this quote, entering an uncertain and chaotic period for colleges and universities, and really that you know their sustainability is under threat. And you list a, a host of reasons to support the position, uh, and you expect potentially more closures and mergers and, and just the shrinking of campuses. And you wrote this pre-COVID. And now we live in a time where it's all COVID all day long for our campuses. And, you know, I was curious about your thinking now in terms of this like new, even more heightened level of uncertainty and chaos and how you see it impacting our campuses.
1: Well, I, I have to confess there's a paragraph on page 23 that's gotten me into quite a bit of hot water since March. Um, I, I wrote the book in and- 2016 through 20 came with the winter of 2019 2020, mm-hmm. and uh, in this early page, uh, I was asking people to imagine different ways that higher education could be transformed. Uh, I was trying to get people to think in a futures way. It's an introductory shape, and so in this paragraph, I said, "Well, okay, let's just imagine what would happen if a pandemic struck the United States <laughs> and the world. Say a pandemic as broad in reach as the Great Influenza of a century ago." How would that change things? How would that change athletics? How would that change teaching online? How would that change business models and so on? So when the book came out, nobody paid attention to that paragraph until March. And now I get people saying things like, Alexander, what kind of dark forces are you in league with? Or, you, you did this to us. You know, um, the, the fact is that thinking about pandemics and their impact is something that... The Futures World has been doing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing simulations, we've been making media, we've been writing essays, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, and it's just been something that people haven't taken as seriously as they should have. I kind of regret that being one <laughs> forecast I nailed dead to rights, but I hope some of my happy forecasts uh, come to pass instead. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, you're going to have but to be careful. Com- In the book that you're working on now, which we will get to, I guess you're going to have to be careful, on, or check page 23.
1: I'm waiting for that. I'm, I'm really uh, you know, uh, a little anxious about that. People often use um, you know, a lot of terms to describe uh, an uncertain, unsettled time like our own. But I, I think the strength of, of my book, such as it is, is that it was uh, identifying a whole series of forces that were in play before COVID hit. Mm. And now we can understand what's happening now by seeing what COVID does to those forces, how it interacts. So, for example, uh, one trend I've been tracking is the overall decrease in enrollment in American higher education, and that dates back to 2012. And basically every semester since 2012, the total number of students enrolled has ticked down. Nothing dramatic semester by semester, just a little bit each time, 1% here, 2% there. Um, But overall, it's substantial, Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Uh, And this can be quite disturbing for quite a few campuses. COVID, back in April, I suggested that this would accelerate that downtick. And so far, it seems to be borne out. Uh, The most recent data we have from the uh, National Student Clearinghouse says that uh, total enrollment is down about 4% uh, this semester, Mm -hmm. fall semester, compared to last year. And that's significant. And we can say it may not all be because of COVID one of the most spectacular has been the collapse of the for-profit higher education sector. That was having serious, serious problems in the uh, second Obama administration term, um, especially when the Obama administration went after a lot of these for-profits. And so they really, really uh, collapsed, and that publicity really helped take them down. The great scholarship of Bill and Cotton played a role in that as well. And then also we've seen uh, community colleges. Their enrollment tends to be countercyclical to unemployment, Mm -hmm. So once we had the Great Recession, uh, unemployment shot up, so did enrollment in community colleges. But as the unemployment rate ticked down uh, month by month, year by year, so did enrollment in community colleges. And so that continues to go down. But there may also just be a kind of general uh, anxiety about uh, higher education. Mm -hmm. And so all of those are in play. And then COVID happens. Uh, You can imagine... That the economic reasons to avoid higher education are intense—you know, like your fear of debt, fear of um, the opportunity cost of not working while you're in school, for example. Uh, all those things can play a role in general. But now with COVID, it's a, in a worsened recession that can heighten those. There's also the fear that if you go to a physical campus, you might be in danger of infection. And that's a real weird, a real worry. As mm-hmm. My alma mater, the University of Michigan, right now just got smacked down by the county where it lives. Uh, the county ordered the students to stay in place because infections were rising. Uh, and the flip side is people who might not see higher education online as as good quality as face to face don't want to take classes online. So, COVID accelerated all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another acceleration. You know, we're talking about the the shift from the humanities towards the sciences where basically enrollment for the past decade has been growing in the sciences in general and dropping in the humanities in general. Well, COVID might accelerate that because you'll have some students who feel that they are confronting a great crisis of their time and they want to contribute. You know, they want to do what they can to fight. And so they might be more likely to major in anything within allied health. You know everything from you know premed to nursing to therapy to anesthesiology, uh, and I suspect that state governments and nonprofits and foundations are going to be happy to direct funding in that direction. Right. After all, this is a spectacular crisis. Uh, at the same time, universities and colleges that are being clobbered financially right now, if they see that movement happen, this may make them cut back on the on the arts and humanities. Uh, they might close a search for an open position. Uh, where they might cut a bunch of adjuncts, where they might uh, collapse a bunch of programs into one in order to save money. So, again, COVID serves as an accelerant for that kind of force. I think overall, I think academia next gives you a a foundation for understanding what's happening, plus the idea of futures thinking to open yourselves to possibilities, uh, to open yourselves to what kind of multiple directions things could go in. I think that is just essential thinking uh, for 2020.
0: Actually, that's a good point that I wanted to ask you about. And, you know, sticking with the COVID crisis, so many of our campuses are are focused on (laughs) day-to-day tactical planning. And even we're discussing, like, the next semester seems like really looking ahead. They're challenged um, around the future-oriented mindset. At least this is my perspective so far. What can our campuses do when they're really just trying to get through the semester and keep everyone safe? How do they move to that future-oriented mindset and juggle oh, both great at the same time?
1: There are a lot of responses that are out there. I think one of them that I would advise is uh, taking students really seriously. You know, you think about, if about traditional age undergraduates, you know, 18 to 22. I mean, imagine being 18 right now. What an extraordinary thing to happen. I just have very little patience for the kind of cliched old folks complaining about kids these days right now. This seems especially stupid right now, given what the world that they have, that these eighteen-year-olds are experiencing, and the enormous pressure that they're, they're under. Uh, so, I think we should listen to them, listen to their stories, see what they need from campuses. You know, what it's like to uh, choose a major right now, what it's like to try and make friends either through social distancing in a face-to-face campus or online, and we should bring them into our planning, uh, help the students, mm-hmm. help us co-create. You know, the next stage of American higher education—that seems so obvious to me and so important that we really, but we really have to do it. Uh, there are other practices that are out there. I, I've seen quite a few people urge a greater ethos of care in how we approach students, uh, and that's everything from say check-ins in class, you know, how are you guys doing, are you all right, for faculty to have a better awareness of campus mental health uh, resources so they know how to direct students that way, and then just to uh, to ease off on students a bit uh, to Mm -hmm. cut back on some of the uh, work requirements, to lower some of the standards, uh, you know, a sense of of giving students a break um, for trying to do academic work in the middle of of an extraordinary time. Another thing to do that we academics have a really hard time with all too often is we need to work with other academics across domains, so uh, at the faculty level that involves crossing disciplinary boundaries. So, you know, if you're a biologist and trying to figure out, all right, I want to do a high-flex classroom. How does this work? That's great to hear from other biologists. Um, But also talk Mm -hmm. to somebody in economics and see what works for them. Uh, And then staff, you know, have to be able to cross all kinds of professional boundaries, people in admissions, talking to people in advancement, talking to people in IT or talking to people in libraries. And then for all of us to be unafraid of the different minute gradations of institutional barriers. So people in community colleges really should be listened to by people in research universities and liberal arts colleges. Because although even we have different institutional expectations, different institutional structures, still we're facing so many similar challenges and issues. I, I think this is a great time to be doing all that kind of cross-silo learning.
0: I, I definitely encourage people to uh, read Academia Next and learn more about the, the, the various scenarios for the future of, of different colleges. And, you know, one of, the, one of the the types that you focus on, I think it's the one I went to, but the retro college, <laughs> you know, in your book, you know, it's retro. <laughs> this You're looking down the road. You're looking at, you know, what, 2030 and after, and there's this retro college, which I was like, oh, there's such a fondness for that experience that I had. But it sounds like that, you know, in the end, it's, it's really going to be a blend of many of these different things. There might be a retro college that creates that similar experience.
1: No, I, so to explain to, to, uh, to your listeners, the first part of the book is a look at trends, different forces that I've been talking about that reshape higher education. The second part of the book is a series of scenarios about possible universities and colleges. So a scenario, scenario is a story about the future when one or two forces really strongly shape it. Uh, and so each scenario is based on one of those assumptions. So the retro campus idea is based on the kind of reaction against technology, which some call, say, the, the tech lash, uh, the sense that uh, the digital technology world has gone too far, uh, that its costs are too high, and we need to reclaim what was lost in the big transition mm-hmm. uh, online. In retro campus, you know, you get uh, no mobile devices and uh, no devices, Uh, the digital world in classrooms Uh, students are encouraged to use physical artifacts and learning and so on and i have presented on this to numerous audiences whenever i fire it up everybody laughs (laughs) um they they enjoy it they i I think partly it's the, the recognition of uh people making these arguments that they know or experiences that they've had you know with certain departments or as you said with certain colleges completely and there's a lot to appeal to it. So it's, it's a kind of tongue-in-cheek scenario, but I could know, easily see campuses that would want to market that to people, to so people who want the hands-on experience. You know, they want to uh, work with, you know, they want to listen to music on vinyl. Right? They, they right, want right. to work with uh, tools to turn wood, or they want to work with stone, which is great.
0: That concludes Part 1 of my two-part conversation with Brian Alexander. In the next episode, we will continue the conversation about the future of higher ed and talk to Brian about his book that he's currently working on, Universities on Fire, Higher Education in the Age of Climate Crisis. See you then. Thanks for being here for Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. This podcast is made possible thanks to our partner, public radio station 91.3 WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio. Thank you, YSO. The New American Colleges and Universities connects our campuses to collaborate in the delivery of innovative ideas and to champion the belief that a comprehensive, liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about our amazing campuses, visit nacu.edu n a c u . e d u see you soon